Good evening, brothers and sisters and Bereans. Y'all, we are two weeks away from our from finishing up the full Bible, and I'm really, really excited. I'm so proud of you. If you stuck it this far, I haven't even, like, I haven't even checked to see if anybody even listens to this, but I just upload it just in case someone comes across it or if anyone's listening online um, and not able to meet with me in person. Um, I'm just so thankful that you've made it this far. And this is a really, really good, solid foundation to help jumpstart your own uh, studies in the Bible and to just expand your knowledge um, and your wisdom and your discernment and your faith and your assurance in Christ Jesus. So I'm super proud of you for being here so far. Um, we are on today. We are covering part three of the interpretive letters. We're covering James, first and second Peter, first, second and third John and Jude. Um, so we have um, already finished the four gospels. We finished Paul's epistles um, and Hebrews. And then we're jumping into the Hebrew epistles, meaning that the writers are Hebrew, although Paul was Hebrew as well. But um, Paul was primarily taking the gospel to and writing his letters to the church plants in the Gentile nations. Were there Jews there? Yes because the Jews had been scattered. Um, but primarily, the, there were a lot of Gentiles that he was addressing. So, um, in our... One of the things I think we tend to forget, and we definitely underestimate in America, is how many have been martyred for the faith. And if we are willing to be martyred for the faith, that to me was always a really true test of my salvation. Um, growing up, I... I never understood why anyone would die for Jesus. Like, why would we have to, you know? Um, and that always kind of bothered me. Um, and I was never really a true believer back then. So um, I was definitely just Christian by affiliation. So the thought of dying for someone was ludicrous to me. And um, a lot of times when you start talking about eschatology and end times prophecy, and you start discussing pre-trib, which um, is a belief that um, you'll be raptured before the tribulation. There's mid-trib, which is the belief that you'll get raptured halfway or die halfway through the tribulation period. Or post-trib, which means that you'll make it through the whole tribulation period. And um, a lot of people who... I'm someone that believes in the rapture and a lot of people who disagree with me are very aggressive because they're like, you just want to jail, get out of jail free card. You don't want to have to die for your faith. And I'm like, why? I would die for my faith now. So if I'm wrong, I will die for my faith then. Like it's not, if you're not at the point where you're willing to die for your faith, you really got to start digging into the word. You really got to start knowing your, your Messiah and your, um, and Jesus nobody is not not willing to die for their faith whether it is now to me tribulation isn't about martyrdom that's just the fifth seal that's just one out of 21 judgments coming from god okay you got the wrath of god and then you got these judgments coming from god um a lot of persecution a lot of famine a lot of um, inflation a lot of um just tragedy that happens that's different than martyrdom, you know? Um, so anyways, I have on here each apostle and how they died. Um, Paul was, behead, was beheaded. Sorry, that sounded really country. Beheaded. Beheaded in Rome, Italy in 66 AD. Um, Judas, I don't really uh, consider himself a martyr. 
Um, this is more about how the apostles die, uh, died. Um, he committed suicide right after Jesus was um, crucified. Um, let's see. Peter was crucified head down at his own request. He felt like he wasn't worthy to be crucified head up. We had Philip was crucified. Um, Thaddeus was crucified. Simon was crucified. Um, John was boiled in oil. But he ended up being the only one that died a natural death. Um, James, which is, um, he died in Jerusalem, 66 AD. We're going to cover him next. Um, he's Judas's, Judas, Jesus's brother. And he was preaching from the top of the temple. And they threw him down off of the top of the temple because they put him up there to say that Jesus was not the son of God. And he said the opposite of it. And they threw him down off of the temple. He survived. And then they ended up stoning him and clubbing him to death. So just a lot of really, you know, tragic times. But back then it was illegal, you know, and um, it's just very, it puts things into a, a really interesting perspective of being of such great faith that you die for that faith. I mean, we are very, very blessed to not have our um, Christianity illegal at this point. But there's that's just it's just a matter of time, y'all. It's just a matter of time. All right, James. So the letter of James is shocker traditionally be believed to be written by James the brother of Jesus mentioned in Matthew 13:55 um and he is an early leader of the church in Jerusalem and and that's mentioned in Acts 15 um James did not believe who Jesus was until after he died and was resurrected um he was not supportive of the ministry. That's why some say that this book was written by James, one of the 12 disciples, not James, Jesus's brother. Um, but I think most scholars believe that this was James, Jesus's brother's brother, because he had such an early leadership in the church after the resurrection of Jesus. It even mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter, oh, I want to say like either 5 or 15, I can't remember, it was one of those um, numbers um, where Jesus was resurrected and he came to visit. It lists all these people that he came to visit. And the very last person that was mentioned is James. So um, a very tender moment, I expect, between the two of them. That's just, we have to read between the lines to fill in. So the letter was likely sent through the most through, throughout most of the ancient Mediterranean world, and it was likely written around 40 to 45 A.D. The audience of the book of James is mentioned um, in James as the, quote, 12 tribes in the dispersion. So we can assume that the letter was written to the Jewish Christian house churches that were living outside of the Palestinian era uh, region. You won't hear me refer to Israel as Palestine very often, but it's more of a region, um, the regional area. It's even bigger than Judea and Samaria. So that's why I included that in there. So this was after they had been scattered um, from Jerusalem and were scattered all around um, that area, and they were meeting in house churches at that point. So his readers were suffering from a lot of persecution, and thus they were living in a lot of po poverty. They were in a social and spiritual conflict, many living in a worldly manner, and James corrects them and challenges them to seek God's wisdom to work out these problems that they were having. So um, James, the theme of James is often considered the Proverbs of the New Testament because James focuses on how believers must live 
out their faith, which is a lot of what Proverbs covers. And you'll notice that a lot of Proverbs isn't necessarily about acts, but about obedience through our faith. Our acts, our works should be out of the abundance of our faith, not to not the other way around that we do these works so that we have more faith. Do you know what I mean? Because then we lose the heart of God in that. So making their faith active and fruitful obedience of loving God and loving their neighbor. So James starts out with a salutation in um, 1-1. And then in 1-2-18, he talks about true faith. I mean, that's really the, the echoing theme throughout James is about true faith. Okay, true faith endures trials and temptations. And James talks about in that, that temptation does not come from God. That temptation comes from Satan. That God does not tempt you. He will allow you to be tempted, but he himself is not the one that's doing the temptation. So that's important to remember. Um, But he does send trials. Um, Also, true faith consists of action through obedience, and that's in one nineteen through two twenty six. True faith displays wisdom with and without words. That's in three one through eighteen. True faith has humility as it draws near to God. That's in chapter four one through seventeen. And then true faith is blessed through patience, prayer, and love. And that is in chapter five one through twenty. James in 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, without judgment, without condemnation. He gives it generously when you ask. It will be given. So that's kind of James in a nutshell. He's a little bit, he's a lot like Peter. James is a little bit sharp around the edges, a little bit rough around the edges. Peter also is that way. Um, They were leaders they were leaders for the Jewish Christian believers. So a lot of these books, these letters will have a Jewish undertone to it, a lot like Hebrews does. Um, and so Peter, first Peter is what we're going to move on to next. Peter was who was once a fisherman and now a disciple and a quote witness of the sufferings of Christ um, mentioned in five one. He wrote this letter. He likely wrote this letter from Rome because um, in five chapter five verse thirteen he refers to Babylon living in Babylon and that's obviously Babylon was not did not exist then so that's obviously a reference to Rome so that's probably where he wrote that letter from around 62 to 63 AD during Nero's reign Paul wrote this letter to address believers scattered in Pontus Galatia um, Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia which are all Roman provinces in Asia Minor modern day Turkey these territories had been impacted by the, the Greco-Roman um, culture and had been under Roman control from the mid-first century B.C. So Peter is writing to encourage his readers to endure suffering and persecution and giving themselves entirely to God through that. Um, and that's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 19. Um, he tells them to remain faithful in times of distress, knowing that God will vindicate them and that they will enjoy the salvation that the Lord has promised them. Christ, um, excuse me, Christ's death and resurrection is a model for all believers. Just as Christ suffered and then entered into glory, so too his followers will likely suffer before being exalted. 
So the theme of First Peter is, sorry, excuse me, um, that those who persevere in faith while suffering should be full of so much hope. Okay, so First Peter's broken down a little bit easier. Um, it's all about having hope in a world that is not our home. Okay, so we have the introduction in verses 1 and 2, and then we have our salvation in Christ in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. It talks about justification in 3 through 5 and sanctification in 6 through 9. Then we have um, our identity and purpose in Christ, um, and that is in chapter 1. 13 through 5, 9. So we've got our privileges of having the power of the Holy Spirit. Talking about, He talks about holiness and love and spiritual growth. That's in verses 13 in chapter 1 through 2.10. And then our position in the body as sojourners, citizens, servants, wives, husbands, brethren, sufferers, and awaiters, awaiting. Um, that's in chapter 2.11 through 4.11. And then we have our persecution in Christ in chapter 4, 12 through 5, 9. And then we have the conclusion here in 5, 10 through 14. So there's a lot more in there, just so much depth, but I can only go so deep and at least give you, you know, a stepping stool off of that. So let's move on to Second Peter. So Peter identifies himself in this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, he specifically mentions that he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration. Um, he mentions that in First Peter, or I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter one, sixteen through eighteen, and in Matthew, the transfiguration chapter is in Matthew seventeen one through eight. So Peter likely wrote this letter from prison in Rome, not long before his death execution, where he was crucified upside down, and that was about. Gosh, it was almost 20 years after he wrote his first letter, and that was in 64 to 67 A.D. So um, as far as who he was writing to, we can't say with certainty which churches Peter was addressing in his second letters. It may have been the same churches in Asia Minor that of the first one that he mentions, um, this being his second letter to the same group of people, but... <laughs> He probably wrote more than just one letter to a group of people. So it could be that this is the second letter to another group of people, you know. So it's really hard to say. We can't say for certainty. Um, but he likely wrote many, you know, many, many letters in his ministry. But we do know that they were probably Messianic believers, um, Jewish Christians. So he wrote this final and brief letter as a reminder to the churches that his readers will, by God's grace, live in a way that is pleasing to God. And in doing so, Peter combats the false teachers urging these churches to depart from the true knowledge of Christ mentioned in chapter 2. This false teaching promotes some form of sexual permissiveness as a legitimate Christian lifestyle. Some also claim that the false teachers were Gnostics, but there's really no clear evidence to say whether that was true or not. You know, if you'll notice, Peter... And James really, really talk about, really hone in on this living a life in a way that is pleasing to God, which is a very Jewish approach to things. That's literally all that they know. That's what it was in the Old Covenant. So that's obviously going to be a very big focus for them in the New Covenant, as it should be for us as well. But I think that it can get twisted sometimes. Oftentimes, people who say that you don't follow the Torah, 
If you don't follow, if you don't keep the feasts, if you don't eat clean, if you don't keep the Sabbath, um, these things, you're lawless. And that's just not true. I don't think no, James nor Peter talks about keeping the feasts. Paul doesn't talk about keeping the feast. Paul doesn't talk about eating clean. They don't talk about circumcision. All of these things, I think that's a that's a matter of choice, but that's not about living a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. Living a lifestyle that's pleasing to God is consists of the fruits of the Holy Spirit consists of being led by the spirit and that's why this was such an issue because people were saying that sexual permissiveness is okay in the christians that's not like in colossians paul goes into idolatry and lawlessness and how it is impure desires sexual immorality um all these all these evil types of things whereas when you if you're eating pork that's not necessarily evil do you know what i mean um it is some will say it's unclean well that's not true because christ has made us clean so what we eat what goes in our mouth can no longer make us unclean um if that's the case then we should probably quit eating all sweets and all cake and all gluten and all things that is disruptive to the gut i mean you know what i mean like you can become so legalistic with it and i don't think that that's paul i mean peter or james's intent with this so the theme of Second Peter is that God's grace transforms and empowers Christians to live righteously despite opposition. And this grace serves as the foundation for the whole book of Peter. So James was all about true faith. First Peter was all about having hope in a world that's not our home. And Second Peter is all about grace. Grace. So we've got true faith, hope, and grace. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces virtuous qualities in followers, and this results in very fruitful lives. So, Second Peter, um, the introduction is in one chapter one, one through two. Um, we have growth and grace and knowledge, and that's in chapter one, three through ten. Talks about the gifts and the blessings in three through four, knowledge in Christ in five through eleven, and then these careful reminders in chapter um, in verses twelve through twenty-one. And then chapter two is dedicated specifically to the false teachers, their destructiveness, their doom, their depravity, and their deceptions. And then we have the return of Jesus in chapter three. Um, he mentions that scoffers will come as we near the end of the time of Jesus that there will be scoffers, and then we have the day of the Lord specifically mentioned in chapter 3, 10 through 18. So one of my favorite things about Peter is he talks about having this, in chapter 1, he talks about having a divine nature versus this sinful desire. And these are some things that I've been really um, thinking about. And notice that what he's talking about in here isn't anything about the Torah. It's all about the fruits of the Spirit, um, the divine nature of God is the fruits of the spirit. And this isn't anything that we can do. It is literally a, a change in our lives that is only produced through the Holy Spirit. So he talks about how faith produces goodness and goodness produces knowledge and knowledge growing in knowledge produces self-control and self-control um, produces perseverance and steadfastness and that steadfastness produces godliness and that godliness produces kindness and that kindness produces um, this agape love so if you possess these qualities 
in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just think that's a really beautiful thing. If you start working on your foundation in faith and keep working on that faith, that faith will produce a goodness in you that you did not have before, a quality that you did not have. And through that goodness that you start to have through Christ, you grow in this knowledge of Christ, which is so, that's where you really start to go from milk to meat. And then when you have this knowledge, you learn how to have more self-control in your thoughts and in your actions and in your words, everything. And as you grow in that self-control, then you start to produce more perseverance and steadfastness, more discipline in your life, where before you were a little bit wavering in it. And as you learn through that self-control and discipline of that self-control and perseverance and steadfastness of it, then you start to produce godliness. And through that godliness, you start to produce more kindness and more goodness and more peace and more love. So it's like a stepping, it's like a stepping stool. And I always, this is something I go back to because my, um, personally, this is just me. Um, one of my struggles is perseverance and steadfastness because I get discouraged really, really easily. And, um, that's something that I'm working on and I have to work on that through self-control that self, that self-control controlling the thoughts controlling the actions, controlling the mind, controlling the tongue, controlling the anger, everything. That step has to be really, really solid before you start to have perseverance. And so I just think it's really something it's, it's, you always go back and sometimes you have to go back and repair steps because something's blown through it. So I just think it's a really good imagery to have that idea. Because if we don't have love, if we don't have kindness, if we don't have godliness and perseverance and self-control and knowledge and goodness and faith, then we are living in the sinful desires of the flesh. And that's what we are to crucify every single day. So anyways, stuff, it's something I've been thinking on for a while. But let's move on to 1 John. So 1 John, so we go from James and Peter, who are a little bit rougher around the edges, a little bit less fluffy, to John, who's fluffy. I don't know if he was fluffy in real life. I'm sure he probably wasn't fluffy in real life. But he, there is a gentleness to John besides when he... <laughs> and Peter were running and John beat him. I'm sure he just had to add that in his gospel. And I think it's hilarious, but I feel like out of the competitive ones, it was really Peter that was more competitive than John. Um, he, Peter wanted more, but John had this tenderness about him that made him very, very special with Jesus, where he was the last disciple waiting. All of the other disciples had left Jesus' side, but John John persevered, and I believe it wasn't through his zeal like Peter had. It was through his tenderness and through his love, and that's what makes John special. So John wrote this book. John, the son of Zebedee, likely wrote all three of these letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John in the New Testament, no later than A.D. 90. So this is kind of toward the end. These are sort of the last letters that were mentioned. Um, it's around the same time that he wrote Revelation, around that same time. Um, so, But Revelation was a little bit later because that was probably during his exile. So he likely wrote 1 John from Ephesus, which is present-day Western Turkey, where he had relocated um, near the time of the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D. In, um, from the Romans. Um, 
So the audience of 1 John, this letter was probably intended to be read by the church in Ephesus and probably those who surrounded the cities, just like when Paul wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus, it was for the surrounding cities as well. Um, So like those, um, a lot of the churches that surrounded Ephesus are similar to the ones that are mentioned in um, Revelation 2 and 3 with the seven letters, Thyatira, Philadelphia, um, all of those surrounding churches, Laodicea. Um, so the theme of First John is that there are three basics of the Christian life. Having true doctrine, and it's often called pure or simple doctrine, um, obedient living, and faithful devotion. Jesus lives in and among us, and he is greater than the spirit of the Antichrist now in the world. So um, in John, it says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So John really talks about in the prologue, he talks about the word of life. This is in chapter one, one through four. And then we have um, the focus on God being light. That's in chapter four. Um, 1, 5 through 3, 10. So we have where you walk in the light, obey the command to love, know your spiritual worth, warning of the enemies of the faith, and then live like God's children. And then we have where God is love. This is in chapter 3, 11 through 5, 12. It focuses on loving one another and obedience to Christ. It talks about testing the spirits, loving one another in faith, obeying the spirit, and believing in like true belief. And then we conclude with the confidence and characteristics of God's children. So I think it's really important because John talks about how in 1 John 2, 16, he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are three characteristics of what Satan uses to tempt everyone. And I have a few examples of that. So just think about that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are things that he used to tempt Eve in the very beginning, in the garden, when he told her, did God really say? All he did was tempt her to question God's word. And she, when he did that, to tempt to um, no longer trust God's word, when she looked at the fruit, she saw that it was good to eat for fruit, to eat for food, that's the lust of the flesh. She thought, saw that it was very beautiful. That's the lust of the eyes. And then she also said that it will make her wise, knowing good and evil. And that's the pride of life. And she fell into temptation. Satan also used these same three things whenever he went to tempt Jesus in the wilderness after he had been fasting for 40 days and was weak. And he used the same thing. He said, um, He knew Jesus was hungry because he had been fasting, and he told him to turn the stones into bread, Um, and that's the lust of the flesh, and Jesus combated all, and he used scripture to tempt him. That's what's so crazy is that Satan used scripture to tempt him, and Jesus talked about God being the bread of life. For Don't you know that um, man is isn't meant to live on bread and bread alone, but on every word that, that proceeds out of the father, Father's mouth. Then Satan tempted him. He took him up on a high place to show him all the kingdoms. Just see all these kingdoms. Um, if you just say, I will give it all to you, if you fall down and worship me, and that's the lust of the eyes, and Jesus did not do that. And then he t- told him to throw, throw himself down, because don't you know that the scripture says that the angels, God casts his angels concerning you, and... That's a temptation for the pride of life, and Jesus did not fall for that. 
And so after that, Satan left him um, and didn't bother him again. So these are three ways that Satan uses to tempt everyone. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What feels good to us, what looks good to us, and what will make us also look good. So keep that in mind. We're going to move on to Second John. All right. So uh, fun fact. I was in a trivia challenge once with the student ministry. We we're all on all these teams, and I was like, oh, I'm going to smash this, okay? I'm going to smash it. And we were doing this trivia thing, and we had all these trivia answers, and there were like 20 questions, and we all worked really, really hard, and I missed one question. And someone on the other team, Simon, he's one of our pastor's sons, missed one question as well, and we both missed the same question, and it was, what is the shortest book in the Bible? And we both said Jude. We didn't cheat. That's what we both thought. It's actually Second John. So just so you know, shortest book in the Bible. Um, so while Second John um, doesn't directly name the author, we know that this is likely written by John himself, um, probably all written around the same time. So John's second letter is um, addressed to the, quote, chosen lady and her children. So a lot of, I was part of a women's ministry once where um, she taught that this is the only book of the Bible that's addressed, or letter that's addressed to a woman. And, you know, it could have been a woman of important standing in the church, or it could be a code which refers to the local church and its congregation. To me, that makes a whole lot more sense than just one woman and her children versus a church and the congregation. And the church is always used in the feminine form um, as the bride of Christ. So um, in those days when the church was being persecuted, um, they would use um, coded, they would use code when they were writing their letters. So this is an urgent um, warning in this letter concerning the deceivers who maintained that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh. That was what he was addressing. So it doesn't really matter who he was talking to. We know that it was a church, whether it was a woman or whether it was a church, it really doesn't matter. And it's semantics and it's divisive to really get into arguments about that. Um, so we do know that that's what he was addressing was that the deity essentially of Christ. Um, so such teaching um, saying that Jesus maintaining that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh, that he was just a God, did not come on flesh. And what's important about that is that it denies Jesus's humanity, which is what all of the birth story is. It's what all of Luke is dedicated to, proving that Jesus is the son of man, um, to let us know of his humanity. And John is really anxious that true believers should be aware of these false teachings and have absolutely nothing to do with them. So the theme of Second John is to live in God's love according to the truth of Jesus. And I think that this is so, so powerful because oftentimes we think of love in a feeling aspect. And that's, it's actually not the way that John is describing it here. John describes love not as an emotion or a feeling, but as obedience to the commands of God. And this love extends to others and is wise. It doesn't go on ahead of biblical revelation mentioned in verse 9. It doesn't aid enemies in the gospel mentioned in um, 10 and 11, but it walks according to God's commandments through faith 
um, of loving your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbors as yourself. If you need um, reference for that, just go into John chapter 14 and 15. It's all about, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Is that talking about the Torah? Well, keep reading. What are the commandments? That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulcrum of everything, and that is what John is talking about. So, John um, is just one chapter. We've got the greetings um, to the elders' love, um, and that's in one through three. And then we have the elders' joy and request, that's four um, through six. And we have the elders' concern, seven through eight. We have the elders' warning, with elder being John, obviously, nine through 11. And then we have closing in the elders' farewell. So um, a verse I have for you is that, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands as you have from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. Something that's so hard for people to remember, especially when they, ta- they tend to get really legalistic. Um, so third John, um, obviously, again, written by John. Um, we know that John is writing to his much loved brother in Christ. So this is a lot like Philemon in that it's a very specific letter to a specific issue happening. So his um, love, his much loved brother in Christ is named Gaius. And um, he was a layman of some wealth and distinction in the city near Ephesus. Um, he highly commends Gaius's care and hospitality to his messengers whose mission was to take the gospel from place to place. Whether they were known or strangers to Gaius, Gaius still welcomed them in his home and in the surrounding community. Um, John encourages Gaius to continue to do good and to not imitate evil because this is an example of a troublemaker and a, di- a dictatorial leader named Diotrephes. Diotrephes had taken over the leadership of a church in Asia, and he had not only refused to recognize John's authority as an apostle. I mean, honestly, the audacity. Okay, you're going to ignore Paul. No, you shouldn't. But Paul was not a contemporary of Jesus. He wasn't Jesus's disciple. He wasn't the beloved disciple. John was to care for Jesus's mother. John was with Jesus from the very beginning to the very end, and he is um, no longer recognizing John's authority as an apostle. But also, Diotrephes um, refused to receive John's letters or submit to his counsel. So Diotrephes also circulated malicious slanders against John and excommunicated any members who would show hospitality or support to John's messengers. So John ends his letter um, with a commendation toward the example of Demetrius, which is another member in Gaius's church. So uh, the whole theme of 3 John is to remain faithful despite opposition. So um, John, again, is three is one chapter, and the greetings is in chapters one through four, which is an expression of great joy. Um, the confirmation of Gaius is in verses five through eight. The condemnation of Diotrephes is in verses nine through ten, and the commendation of Demetrius is in 11 through 12, and then he has his concluding remarks in 11 through 14. So here's a quote from it um, in three through four. It says, it gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. So 
that's John for us. Let's wrap up with Jude. It's going to be a little bit longer because Jude is <laughs> Jude is known as like the prequel to Revelation, the precursor to Revelation. Jude is also the brother of James and Jesus. We don't hear much mention of him except for in Matthew 13, 55, where it also mentions James, but we also hear about him in Mark 6, 3. His name is actually Judas, um, but Jude is like a, a shortened version of it because there's confusion between Judas Iscariot, which betrayed Jesus, and Judas, his brother. So many scholars um, shorten his name to Jude um, to give that distinction. So this letter was written by the Jude, the brother of James and Jesus, and Jude was likely written around AD 65 or so. Um, Jude also was likely not a believer until um, the death and resurrection of Jesus himself as well. So considering this letter's apparent Jewish perspective, Jude's audience was likely Jewish Christians or a mixture of Jewish and Gentile readers where the Gentiles were very familiar with the Jewish traditions because they grew up in that culture. So since Jude's, Jude addresses a similar situation expressed in 2 Peter chapter 2, um, and it exhibits a literary relationship to that letter, the two letters are often commonly dated to a fairly, fairly close proximity, even though evidence for the date of writing um, with Jude is sparse. So we're kind of going off of that. They both match. You can compare Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2 with each other. They're good to be read contextually um, as supporting um, evidences. So uh, the theme of Jude, while Jude starts to write his letter um, to the brethren about their common salvation, he changes gears and encourages the reader to contend for the faith. That means to like persevere, to push through for the faith. The church must... Um, defend the one true faith and believers um, must be faithful to the end by resisting false teachers and apostasy and follow the truth of God's word. So um, that kind of gives you an idea. It's really all about apostasy and what that looks like coming toward the end. So um, what I like about Jude is it's almost written like a book. It's also one chapter, 25 verses, but it folds where it mirrors each other. Um, uh, something else that's like this are the 12, the 12, the six days of creation. One, the first day of creation being um, light and darkness, God separating the light from the darkness, can um, it matches day four, and day two matches day five, and day three matches day six. So we've got, let's see, hang on. He separated the light from the darkness, and I think that day four is when he created day and night. And then day two is when he separated the waters from the waters. Um, and then day five was when he created the, um, where he put the waters up in the air and the waters below. And then day five was when he created the um, birds and the sea creatures. And then day three was when he created the land. Day six was when he created the, the beasts and the animals and man. So they all kind of, you see what I mean? You can fold it in half and they complement each other. This is the same thing in Jude. So we've got the assurance for the Christians in verses 1 through 2. We have the assurance for the Christian in verses 24 through 25. We've got the believer and the faith in verse 3. We've got the believer and the faith in 20 through 23. We've got apostates are described in um, verse 4. Apostates are described, apostasy is described in verses 17 through four, 19. 
Apostasy is mentioned in Old Testament history in verse 5. There's apostasy in Old Testament prophecy in verses 14 through 16. We've got apostasy in the supernatural realm in verses 9 through 10. We've got apostasy in the natural realm in verses 12 through 13. And then the trio of apostates is the fulcrum, the back, the backbone of this book. So you see how we can fold it all the way down and it kind of mirrors each other. So the trio of apostates talks about the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the perishing of Korah. Okay, so the, it contrasts the way of Cain, Abel's brother in Genesis 4 versus the way of Christ, which is the right way. Um, you've got the error of Balaam versus the truth of Christ. Then you've got the perishing of Korah versus the life of Christ. So with Cain, the way of Cain, this was a, remember how I talked about in 1 John, how we talked about the desire of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, right? So the pride of life was the apostasy that Cain struggled with. Um, he was a tiller of the soil. He had offerings by the work of his own hands. Um, this is what he's warning against is offering God, things to God by the work of your own hands and not by the work of his own doing, which is what Abel presented him with the lamb um, and also the atonement it's a it's a prophetic implication there, um, and then we've got the error of Balaam. This is the desires of the flesh. He was a prophet of God. He's the one that was led Israel into apostasy. Okay, I just had to go back. Um, I'm, I don't want to re-record this, so I'm going to go back. And I had this wrong. Um, this is from my, my Jude study in Revelation, and I had the order wrong. So the way of Cain would be the desires of the flesh, how he could not remember how um, God tells Cain that he has... Um, Satan is like a crouching lion, and he is seeking to devour him and to flee from that desire, that anger that he had um, from God not accepting his offerings but accepting Abel's. And he could not combat the desires of the flesh, and he gave in to those desires, and he murdered Abel. Okay, That's the desires of the flesh. Then we had the error of Balaam. This is the desires of the eyes. So he was a prophet of God. He was traveling. He led Israel into sin. Um and he sacrificed his eternal riches for temporal gain. There was a, I don't, I don't know if it was Midian. It was one of the kings of Midian or Moab or something like that, where he wanted Israel, he wanted Balaam to prophesy incorrectly to Israel. And he's like, listen, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. But I can lead them into sin so that you can come and conquer them essentially because ba uh, Balaam wanted these the, the the desires of the eyes he wanted to be lifted up in front of everyone else he wanted to be seen as better and this king was going to give it to him so he sent women into the camps of Israel to tempt the men away and attempt the men into idolatry which made Israel fall into idolatry thus they sinned and they were not able to receive um the blessings from God. So he purposefully caused them to stumble. So he fell into the desire of the eyes um, category. And then the perishing of Korah, he had the, he struggled with the pride of life. Um, 
He was a, a, a chief and a prince in Israel, um, and he sought dominion and control. So what he did is he wanted to basically overthrow Moses. This is when they were in the wilderness. Korah had a lot of followers. He was coming up against Moses. And what did Moses do? You know, Moses had a hot, he was a hothead. You would think that he would have struck Korah for trying to overthrow him, but he didn't. He said, you know what? Let's let God choose. Maybe my time is up, Cora, and maybe you're supposed to be the one that's supposed to take over. So he stood back, let God choose, and the ground opened up and swallowed Cora and his followers for trying to overthrow Moses, God's appointed leader. So he struggled with the pride of life. These three things, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the perishing of Cora, are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Things, seeking dominion and control over the pride of life. Sacrificing your eternal riches for temporal gains is the desire of the eyes, this fleshly, immoral desire. And then offering your own works in your own hands and giving into the anger and giving into the sin of your flesh is the, is, is the apostasy that will come before the end. So just some things to, to think about. Um, we are done for today. Next week, we are going to talk about Revelation. I've already finished the slides because I already like y'all, I can write this from memory. Um, I already had a lot of the slides already created. So I just spent, you know, an hour putting together, I have about 23 slides. So it's going to be a big one. But if you want anything, let's cover Revelation. We are going to blast through Revelation. So I can't wait for y'all to come next week. I think you're really going to enjoy it. For those of you who are part of my Revelation study, this is basically going to be a refresher. And I think you're still going to really like it. So um, I, you can always use a refresher. Thank y'all for sticking around. Excuse my error with that. Um, sometimes that happens when I carry in from other slides. So um, I hope you guys have a super blessed day. I love you so much. I'll see you next time. Bye.